Hello, restaurant and hospitality industry friends, and welcome to While We Were Waiting, a podcast developed to highlight the funniest, most uplifting, and sometimes even downright crazy stories from inside the restaurant. I'm your host, Martha Madison. And I'm AJ Gilbert. So we know things are rough out there. AJ and I are restaurateurs. I'm a hospitality recruiter. So let me just say, we get it. We feel you. Um, And just like many of you guys, you're probably getting a steady stream of bad news like we are. Uh, So we decided to put something good back into the mix. Restaurant stories, chef stories. And today we're going to be telling stories about resilience. You know, grit, the scrappiness that we're all made of in the restaurant industry. And I'm really excited because we're going to have a good friend of mine and AJ's on the show today. Her name's Brooke, and she's got a great story. I can't wait for you all to hear it. While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters. One House provides hotel and restaurant groups with highly tailored and confidential searches for all salaried front and back of house management, as well as all executive and C-suite leadership. When this madness ends and you're ready to rebuild your team, reach out to us at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. At One House, our motto has always been, we are one, and we are. So Martha, what did you do today in quarantine? (laughs) Um, Can you ask that not so? (laughs) It makes me laugh every time. It's so like, I don't know, like you're reading it off the paper. I'm reading it off the paper. (laughs) Well, I'm supposed to be reading it off the paper, but now you want to switch to conversation. You're like, and Martha, what? Well, but it's the same question every day. That's the bit. It's every day we're in quarantine, so it's supposed to sound rote. Okay, go ahead then. So Martha, what did you do today in quarantine? Oh, today's quarantine was a bummer. So my mother is uh, staying in a uh, a sort of a nursing facility. She's in hospice care. So I'm one of the many, many people that's not able to see um, or go near her parents at this time. And so I did a little shopping for her um, and dropped everything off on the front porch. And I'm sure that all of the uh, nursing and caregiving staff lysoled everything down and I waved at her through the window and it was just terribly sad and and horrible. And I know I'm not alone in that. I know there are a lot of people out there that are having to deal with that too. But I have to remind myself and I'll remind all of you too that staying away from people who are in a high-risk category is the most loving thing that you can do. So keep it up, stay away, Lysol everything. Um, you know, and then I, I came home, I did homeschool and uh, – Grocery, uh, did some grocery shopping and some laundry and wiped everything down. <laughs> what did you do in quarantine today, honey? Um, I had to go to the bank for some odd reason. It's like the most work I've had to do in the last two weeks, I guess. Um, and uh, they called and said I would be using the drive-thru, which was great because then Charlie could come, which was her outing for the day. I was sitting in the back of the car as we drove through the – she loves the tube, the um, – what's it called? Oh, the little Mnemonic tube thing. Yeah. So that, that, was, that was the highlight was the, the suction tube that you send the – I didn't the know they still did all that. I, I can't remember the last time I drove through a bank. Yeah, it was with me last week. 
but no, uh, I usually go to like the ATM. I mean, I've never, I haven't been to like a teller at a drive-through since I was a kid. It's weird. It's something you see in Texas. You don't see in California is the drive-through tellers. No. Uh-uh. Yeah. It is. It's starting to feel much more real. I think the novelty is definitely worn off. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very sorry that Charlie is not able to go to school. It makes me really sad. And they do the Zoom stuff with her class and you see everybody's little face on the screen. And it's just so sad that these kids are missing half of their time at kindergarten for Charlie. Yeah. But I feel like everybody's getting really resourceful though. Like the kids are riding their bikes by and waving and some kids are writing notes and leaving them in the mailbox. And, um, you know, they have a thing at her school right now where they're posting up all of their artwork in the front window of our house. So when they, when the kids go on bike rides around the neighborhood for exercise, they can see everybody's artwork from the street. So, I mean, they're getting really creative. It it is amazing how adaptable people are. I, and it is, Remarkable. I mean, you hear stories about World War II and the things that people did, and then you see, you know, people pivoting to, you know, all the homeschooling and stuff so quickly. It is remarkable. But I, I do feel like for for us at least this week, it really is getting much more real what's happening. And then of course the news coverage and you know the the medical situations in New York and and spreading throughout the country. It, and New it Orleans. Is, oh gosh, it's just gonna be bad. Yeah. So I think that, you know, what really felt like intellectually, I understood that this was a real healthcare issue, but it really felt like an economic uh, industry issue for the first week or so. And and now it is the magnitude of all the healthcare and all the life changes and how long this will likely last is really setting in. And it's, it's remarkable. It's really, it's really something. That's true. When we were little growing up in Houston, you know, once a year or every two years, we'd get to stay home because of a hurricane and we'd get really excited. You know, we'd all get together. We'd get out of our, get our, our camping stuff out, you know, like the lanterns and batteries and make sure all the flashlights were loaded. And it was like a fun thing um, because you didn't have to go to school. You got to kind of basically go camping in your house because you knew the power was going to go out and it was just like family time. Right. Right. But when I was about seven, six, seven years old, we had hurricane Alicia and our power was out for two weeks and it was hot. It was like summertime. And I remember like the first day was really fun. And then the next two weeks, I mean, it was misery. It was just misery. And this, I'm, I'm remembering a lot of that kind of stuff right now. It's like, we're getting to that just miserable part of this. Yeah, and we're not even close to the yeah. end of the beginning. So we just have so long to go. So that that really was striking me today. In terms of what I did, you know, more or less a routine, uh, some kind of workout in the morning, and then, you know, some kind of activity with Charlie, some kind of recess uh, activity with Charlie. We've been able to work on this podcast that's been taking up some time. And then we kind of get into the dinner hour, and it all kind of starts over again. Having a restaurant and working in a restaurant is so much about crisis management and how quickly you can come up with a solution on the fly. You can have anything from a customer slipping and falling to having the kitchen catch on fire or the toilets backing up in the middle of a Friday night. You're always having to figure out how to solve a problem on the fly in the restaurant. And, I, and restaurant people become really good problem solvers. I, I've been watching all the coverage about the ER doctors on the news and extraordinary people in an extraordinary time. And I certainly wouldn't want to uh, compare what we do to what 
people do who are saving people's lives. But the environment of working in an emergency room where you don't have time to eat and the amount of people you have to take care of is greater than the amount of people who can take care of them. It's very similar to a restaurant in in some ways, at least in the superficial ways. And people that work in restaurants are really good at handling stress and chaos and being cool in crazy situations. Yes. Stress and chaos and this tremendous sense of urgency that you need to have to manage that every day. Today's stories are all going to be about scrappiness in the restaurant. So I'll kick it off to you first, AJ. My story goes back to my first big management job. So I'd been managing a small restaurant that didn't need a manager, and it went out of business following the San Francisco earthquake in 1989. And I went to really just the opposite environment, big, huge restaurant. I just turned 21 years old, and I was taking over pretty much all the night shifts, or five of the seven night shifts. And it was a big job. I mean, this was the busiest restaurant in San Francisco. It was getting all sorts of accolades. It was a really big place. And it really was pushing me to the outside of my abilities. And I was paranoid that it wasn't going to work out, but all felt like kind of a trial. And it was not a particularly warm, fuzzy environment. It was kind of an old French abusive environment. So I was always kind of on my toes. And I'd been there for probably about a week. Saturday night, all of the other management and owners and everybody was gone. It was just me. And I I was probably my seventh day working. And for those that know the restaurant business, it's kind of unusual to be left at the helm after you've been working in a new place for seven days. And this wasn't really (laughs) reflective of the trust they had in me. This was just more the kind of general disorder of a new restaurant and, uh, everybody wanted a day off. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't even think they court. I just think they all left it. I I doubt they knew, you know, (laughs) great. I was the only one who was left behind. And, you know, it was incredibly busy. I mean, we were run an hour and a half wait without reservations. People with reservations were routinely waiting 45 minutes. So this typical Saturday night, uh, packed to the gills, people sitting on the, the kind of stairways that led to the dining room because there were no other places to sit. And uh, the extractor fans went out. In a commercial kitchen, these are really important because there's a lot of smoke and uh, there's a lot of heat. If the a uh, fan is not exhausting this material out of the restaurant, the restaurant will fill up with smoke and it'll mm. get to a point where you can't really be inside. And this was a restaurant with, with wood-burning rotisserie, a wood-burning pizza oh, oven, God. and then just a, a massive kitchen. And we did these uh, these mussels that would come out on like a Kamal. They would get super hot and they would smoke. And, you know, it was just, it was a smoky place to begin with. If you ever wonder who's in charge, you know, the sous chef who had been there for a lot longer than I had, or the place hadn't been open for very long, but she had known the people that ran the restaurant and she was kind of more senior. And she came running up to me and she said, the extractor fans are down. What do we do? And I was like, I guess, (laughs) I guess that we're, we're seeing who's in charge now. What you could do is you could close for business, right? Most restaurants probably do 30 to 40% of their sales on Friday and Saturday night. If you close on Saturday, the amount of money that you're going to forego, you know, is probably, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. equal to your payroll at least. I mean, it's a big chunk of money. It's not a decision to be taken lightly. I I think that, you know, people uh, don't understand how critical it is to keep 
restaurants open. It's there's always there's always some reason you could close something that's gone wrong. I couldn't reach anybody who I worked for. Nobody was answering anything, and um, I couldn't get a repair person out. I mean, it, you know, Saturday night is just a terrible time to get repairs anyway. Certainly, nobody wants to come and climb around on a roof, and they just don't answer the phones if they're not interested in doing the job to repair people. I took the bussers. We went up on the roof to look at the the fan and see if there's anything we can do. And the whole dining room is filling up with smoke. And you know, the door you, you could see from the roof, the front door would open and like smoke would billow out. And there was some concern that like a fire alarm was going to go off or something. But there were these skylights that had probably never been opened before, and we were able to kind of pry them open and take kind of cinder block things that were up there and put them open. And smoke started coming out of those. So we were able to vent uh, a little bit of smoke from the kitchen. Went downstairs and just started looking at what was smoky, right? So the the mussels that I mentioned earlier, they were very smoky. The the rotisserie was a live fire. There's not much you can do about that. But if you make the fire bigger, it tends to exhaust a little bit more. So we started adding more wood and then just kind of went down the menu. And every time something would come off the line that had made a lot of smoke, cross it off the menu and just started 86ing the menu down to what probably came out to be like five, six things. So you go from maybe 25 items to five or six items. And, you know, for most people, that's fine. If, if you have, you know, some sort of protein, you know, some sort of salad, a couple appetizers, and they understand that there's a problem, that's so much better than just telling the guests, you know, we're not going to be able to serve you and where are they going to go and all that kind of stuff. So we were able to pare the menu down. We got it relatively de-smoked and we ran the rest of the service this way. Went home, I, my clothes stank of smoke, my hair smelled like smoke. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. You know, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to some more effort to call somebody or, or what the outcome of this was going to be to this new job that I absolutely loved. And uh, I came to work the next day, a chef named Reed Heron, uh, somewhat uh, uh, demanding fellow, um, very good at what he did. And I came in and, you know, every restaurant manager, you have like a mailbox in the office. It's like your area to keep stuff. And the menu that we'd had at the host podium where we had been crossing all the items off was pinned to my box. And it, it said, great job. Uh, and then it was initialed RH for Reed Heron. And at that moment, I knew that I was going to get to keep this job and uh, I wasn't going to get fired. comes from our dear friend and colleague, Brooke Burton-Lutman. Brooke is an operations consultant based in Los Angeles and also has a tremendous background in training and development. And a fun fact, she used to be our general manager at Luna Park in Los Angeles. You can find her online um, at her blog, which is foodwolf.com. That's F-O-O-D-W-O-O-L-F.com. I'll tell you, um, my first um, story of being um, a bartender in Los Angeles, I had been a bartender in Boston uh, for six, seven years, and I moved to L.A. in the late 90s. If you've never been to Los Angeles trying to get a job, uh, one of the big culture shock moments was that it's more like a casting call. People were asking for headshots. Um, there were supermodels showing up and to be a bartender in LA is kind of like trying to land um, a role on your favorite um, soap opera. And I finally landed a job uh, on Wilshire and 
Western, not far from uh, mm -hmm. Luna Park. And it was a jazz club restaurant. It was very fancy, it had like 1920s vibe, high ceilings, velvet curtains, elegant service with waiters in like black vests and white shirts. It was really classy. I trained for about a week as a bartender and I noticed that things started to change. The band stopped showing up. <laughs> um, the menu started to get really simplified. Uh, and then the managers changed. And then one of my first paychecks bounced. The manager on duty actually seemed really concerned and he wrote me another check and said like you need to deposit this right away. That made me a little bit nervous so I um, did what he said and the check went through. One Sunday night a group of really really good looking guys showed up and they came in with suitcases and big backpacks and another group of guys started setting up some pretty fancy sound equipment on the stage. I was like who are these guys? And uh, the manager said, oh, they're the Hollywood men. You're going to love them. All of a sudden, like the doors open and the place is packed and there are all these women and they're like buying all this booze and I'm a bartender, so it's great. And they're like really excited mom types. The curtains open with this like group of men dressed like in all these weird outfits, kind of like the village people. And they start <laughs> taking off their clothes. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> Where am I working? Yeah. You officially work at a strip joint. Yeah. <laughs> My experience was a great introduction to being a scrappy restaurant person in Los Angeles. These were people who were really trying to pay the rent and doing whatever it took to make it work. And then I think there comes a point where willing to be scrappy can start to be a bad thing and yes. I think knowing when to pull the plug is really important. As the late Kenny Rogers would say, you gotta know when to hold them and know when to fold them. AJ and I had a, our very last restaurant that we opened in Los Angeles. We opened in the old Luna Park space and um, uh, we decided to open uh, sort of a coastal Mexican restaurant called Pata Salada. We opened this restaurant thinking, well, this is great. We're opening a, a restaurant for free, basically. It was a turnkey restaurant in a space where we had operated for 10 years before as Luna Park and a very successful restaurant. Joe Jack, our Luna Park partner, came back and helped us with the menu. And, you know, we're checking off all the boxes. Like, this is going to be great. We're going to do really well. What we didn't realize or, or really understand the magnitude of was that the city of Los Angeles was building a subway from downtown LA out to the beach. And one of the biggest subway stations was going to be directly across the street from us on Wilshire and La Brea. They closed off the intersection to dig up this huge intersection uh, for what would take months, um, actually, I think it went on for more than a year. The The intersection was on full lockdown as we were opening this restaurant. And now that the whole world is starting to understand that the restaurant business is a cash flow business, we never developed the cash flow to maintain the business. We were considering changing the concept, even though the concept was probably our highest rated concept and uh, menu that we had ever done. We tried everything. I mean, it was a masterclass in 
grit and scrappiness for us. We really tried everything we could and unfortunately just didn't work. And so we actually closed the restaurant four months to the day after we opened. You know, this is something that I'm seeing happening across the board, right? You're seeing a lot of very skilled restaurateurs um, with really great food and great concepts and great, you know, clientele, uh, just not able to make it work. Be and so there is a moment where you have to throw up your hands and you have to say, I did everything possibly, I, I possibly could. I learned every lesson I could possibly learn. And I got this phone call and it was this guy from a restaurant brand that I knew uh, calling for a reference for one of our employees from Pata Salada. And he said, well, we're opening this restaurant in West Hollywood and we're looking for a reference for this girl. And I said, well, she's great. And yes, you should hire her, but you should also hire me. <laughs> I said, I'm a really good bartender. Do you need bartenders? And they said, yeah, come on down. So. Wow. I went down and I helped get this bar open and really just really tried to remind myself of why I loved working in hospitality, you know, threw my ego and pride out the window. Sometimes you have to go back to the beginning to rebuild everything that you want. And that is not a terrible thing. I am a better restaurateur today than I ever was before. And I do hope that everyone who's listening who might be in a similar boat understands that, you know, sometimes when things fall apart, it really is about clearing the way and clearing your mind and clearing your life uh, so that you can see the path to where you're supposed to go next. Thank you for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And if you love it, please leave us a review. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Waiting Podcast and on Twitter at Waiting underscore podcast. You can check out more info on us, our show, and our social by visiting our website at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. And if you'd like to share your stories with us, we want to hear from you. Just shoot us an email at stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. Until we meet again, stay home, stay healthy. And if you need to hear this, go take a shower. Happy quarantine, everybody.